Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Jason Bradbury. Welcome to the fifth AV Forums podcast. Coming up, we've got the usual DVD and gaming news and reviews, plus an interview with a home cinema calibration expert who explains how you can get a lot more out of your home cinema system with some expert tweaking. But first... This week's... This week's... Audiovisual News. In this episode, new AV kit from Arcam, Toshiba and Bang & Olufsen, and significant HD news from Sky and Warner Home Video. We kick our news off this time with hot off the press's info on two new budding high-end home cinema stars from Arcam. The products demoed to the press at a recent junket are a new AV receiver complete with HDMI compatibility and a new 1080p capable DVD player. The Diva AVR350 receiver adds full 7.1 surround sound capability to its two-way HDMI and HD compatible component video switching talents. There's also support for a second room or zone output. While if it's sheer power you want, the AVR350 boasts a frightening 7x100 watts with all channels driven simultaneously. We've heard this £1,500 beast in action and are happy to report that it should definitely be bringing some serious thrills to home cinema installs when it launches this month. Meanwhile, the Diva DV137 DVD deck adds universal disc playback to its 1080p upscaling talent, making it Arcam's first DVD deck able to handle both SACD and DVD audio discs. Video processing, meanwhile, comes courtesy of the latest generation Zoran Vadis 888S processing engine, with upscaling provided by Anchor Bay. This ambitious and great-looking deck will be available by the end of May for around £1,250. With more 1080p sources like Arcam's new DVD player starting to appear, we were chuffed to discover at a recent Toshiba product show that its upcoming premium WLT68 range of LCD TVs will, according to a Toshiba spokesperson, probably be 1080p compatible. Other tricks of this new range, when it launches in September, will include HDMI inputs and an LCD version of the 100Hz scanning approach we used to see on high-end CRT TVs. Why bother with this on an LCD TV? Because apparently it vastly improves LCD's traditional problems with motion. For our next story, we head off to Denmark and the poshness that is Bang & Olufsen where the company has just unveiled a brand new, typically uncompromising image scaling and system controlling box dubbed the Bayo System 3. Distinctively dressed in silver and black, this surprisingly diminutive box has all kinds of fancy tricks up its sleeve. For starters, it can act as a switching centre for a huge number of AV sources. A cursory look at the new box, and we spotted four HDMI jacks, two sets of component sockets and three scarts, among various other options. The Bayo System 3 is also able to upscale standard definition sources to native panel resolutions of B&O's BayoVision 4 Plasma TV range and can take charge of as many as 12 B&O speakers and two subwoofers. This means it can, for instance, drive two separate 5.1 sound stages or a stereo system together with a 7.2 channel setup. 
finally, B&O have made the box capable, in conjunction with B&O's Beolink AV system technology, of controlling numerous other devices like lights, curtains, projection screens, projectors and even doors, so that you can completely control your viewing conditions at the press of a single button on the remote. With Sky's first high-definition broadcast so close, we can almost reach out and touch their lovely extra bits. We, of course, couldn't finish off this podcast news section without an update on the current state of HD Play. So, firstly, we can reveal that Sky has announced, to our surprise, that from launch it's going to broadcast all of its HD channels in the 1080i format, rather than using a mixture of 720p and 1080i as originally suggested. This arguably makes the idea of saving up for a native 1080-line LCD TV a little bit more tempting than it was before. Finally, we're happy to report on a surprising moment of common sense in the middle of the whole HD DVD versus Blu-ray debacle. As Warner Home Video announces a launch date of May the 9th for the first commercial movie release to carry both DVD and HD DVD versions of a movie on the same disc. The film chosen for this important debut is oddly low profile. The distinctly average Rumour Has It, starring Jennifer Aniston and Kevin Costner. But while the film isn't that important, being able to get both formats on one disc is massively good news for people who currently own a standard definition DVD player but are thinking of going HD DVD later on. The AV Forums Podcast, coming soon. So you want the latest DVD reviews from around the world? and the latest high-definition software reviews. And you need to know exactly what is coming to DVD and when. In 2000, the AV Forums was born. In February 2006, we gave you the AV Forums podcast. This month, to fulfil your AV software needs, we give you AV Play, a dedicated site for DVD, high-definition software and game news and reviews. Brought to you by the same team of reviewers and reporters that have made the AV Forum such an outstanding success, we'll have the biggest news and reviews online before anyone else. Our reviews are renowned for their in-depth technical nature, and this will be expanded with more interactive features, more images, and more details on every major release. We'll also be bringing you detailed and engaging feature articles on all areas of film, DVD, and beyond. Stand by for the biggest DVD resource on the internet and your number one choice for all things DVD, HD and more. avplay.com Bookmark it now. The AV Forum. DVD News and Review Roundup with Phil Hinton. Welcome to the DVD News and Reviews. Coming up, we have an in-depth look at Steven Spielberg's Munich on Region 1 DVD and Neil Gardhouse will be here with the gaming news. But first, DVD News. In Region 1 DVD News, Sony Home Entertainment will release Ultraviolet on the 27th of June. Disc specifications include a 185 to 1 anamorphic transfer and Dolby 5.1 soundtracks in English and French. Extras will include a cast commentary, deleted scenes and several featurettes. Sony has also announced the release of the Pink Panther Special Edition starring Steve Martin from the 13th of June. The disc will have a 185 to 1 anamorphic transfer and Dolby 5.1 sound as well as a host of extras including 11 deleted scenes, 4 documentaries and a music video by Beyoncé. Brenna Vista Home Entertainment has announced the Region 1 DVD release of Lost, the complete second season from the 3rd of October. The 7 disc set will feature all of the episodes from the successful second season 
and we'll have a whole host of behind-the-scenes extras, including three featurettes, interactive features, as well as deleted scenes and bloopers. Disc specs include all episodes in 1.78 to 1 anamorphic widescreen and Dolby 5.1 sound. And TV fans will also be pleased to hear that Buena Vista has also announced Season 2 of Desperate Housewives on DVD from the 29th of August. Again, all 24 episodes are included in 1.78 to 1 anamorphic widescreen and Dolby 5.1 sound. Extras will include a full storyline which was not featured in the broadcast shows, deleted scenes and two featurettes. For those enjoying HD DVD already, there are a few titles announced for the coming weeks ahead. Warner Brothers has announced Training Day and, rumour has it, which will be the first hybrid DVD disc. Both discs will feature 1080p transfers and Dolby Digital Plus soundtracks and are available from the 9th of May. Meanwhile, Paramount has announced U2 Rattle and Hum, Four Brothers and Laura Croft in Tomb Raider from the 30th of May. In Region 2 DVD news, Paramount Home Entertainment has announced the UK release of Aeon Flux on the 22nd of May. The disc specifications are identical to the US Region 1 edition, which features two commentaries, five featurettes and a trailer. MGM Home Entertainment will be releasing the Bond Ultimate Edition Attache case from the 17th of July. The set includes a new digitally restored versions of all 20 Bond films, including DTS Sound. The set also boasts that many of the extras have never been seen before and the price for this Bond Bliss will be approximately £225. And that rounds up our DVD news for this edition. This week's DVD Reviews Good afternoon, I'm speaking to you live just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. At this moment, eight or nine athletes of the Israeli team are being held prisoner. These guerrillas are a group called Black September. Commandos have automatic weapons on the hostages. A deal had been made. Now the Israelis have disappeared. Massive security force. in front of the Arabs. They're all gone. Every civilization finds it necessary to negotiate compromises with its own values. We want to ask you, will you undertake a mission? You will have to leave the country and your family. I can't live with refusing this. We have 11 Palestinian names. Each had a hand in planning Munich. You're going to kill them, one by one. We deposit money into a box that doesn't exist. 200,000 for one name. Am I alone? You'll have four others. They know useful things like documents, cars, clean up. He gets in the bed, his weight arms the device. I give the signal by switching off the light. The big DVD release this month is Steven Spielberg's explosive suspense thriller, Munich. Based on real-life events, the story revolves around a secret team of Israeli assassins as they track down the suspected Palestinians who planned the Olympic massacre in Munich in 1972. The film focuses on the plight of the men involved as they carry out their mission, which will take a personal toll on each of them. Munich, as usual for a Spielberg film, has graininess to the 185-1 to anamorphic image, but not as much as War of the Worlds. It's actually very good from a transfer point of view. No obvious artefacting, no edge enhancement, and a deliberately muted colour palette. 
Sound is very effective during certain scenes. A gunfight has bullets whizzing all around the room. The Dolby 5.1 sound mix is fairly aggressive at times with LFE explosions being powerful in volume, depth and actual ambience. During the quieter moments the soundtrack is also quite ambient and atmospheric. Unfortunately this single disc release has only one extra which is a video introduction by Steven Spielberg. Munich is not what could be classified as an enjoyable movie, but it is very well executed. I personally didn't find the running time an issue, but some may as it clocks in at just shy of three hours. But for this three hours I found myself gripped, not only by the storyline and performances, but this chapter in history which I knew nothing about. It is in some ways quite graphic and bloody, but then the nature of events requires it to be shown this way. It seems Spielberg is a somewhat schizophrenic director. For every Jaws we have a Schindler's List, for every E.T. an Amistad, and now after War of the Worlds we have Munich, which, personally speaking, out of the Oscar-nominated movies I've viewed thus far this year, this has so far been the strongest. Munich scores 7 out of 10. It's strange to think of oneself as an assassin. Think of yourself as something else, then. What's wrong? It should have exploded by now. We found three more names for you. You know how many laws we've broken? He takes up the phone. We hit the remote. Hello? Hello? We're supposed to be righteous. I lose that. That's that's my soul. Say, Papa, don't forget my voice. You think you can outrun your fears, your doubts? That's all the DVD news and reviews we have time for on this edition of the podcast. But stand by for the AV Forums Podcast Extra, which will be available every fortnight from the 11th of May and will feature extra hardware news, DVD and gaming news and reviews, as well as a whole host of interesting special features. And now it's time for the gaming news with Neil Gardhouse. The AV Forums Podcast Gaming News. Thanks, Phil. First up, we finally have some game news for the PlayStation 3, with Namco announcing some information about Ridge Racer 7, which will be unveiled at E3 on May the 10th. The good news, this isn't going to be a direct port of Ridge Racer 6 from the Xbox 360. Oh no, this is a fully-fledged sequel. It will include 40 make-believe cars, each being customisable with apparently 200,000 variations, 20 courses which will be mirrored to give 40, and the online facility to allow up to 14 racers to take part as either individuals or as teams. Not only Ridge Racer will be seen, but the latest incarnation of Tekken, the seminal beat-em-up on the PlayStation, will also be showcased at E3. It looks like Sony are bringing out the big guns needed if Halo 3 is going to be appearing around the same time as the launch of the PlayStation 3. Exciting news for PC and Xbox 360 gamers is the news of the return of an old classic. Before Resident Evil chilled gamers everywhere, there was Alone in the Dark, and next year sees the return of Edward Carnby. 
Set in Central Park, New York, Carnby finds himself involved in an investigation of paranormal activity. Set circa 2006, whereas the original was set in the 1920s, and with more than a passing nod to Resident Evil 4, what is of a particular note that this game is going to be designed with an episodic manner. That is, after 30 minutes or so, it will end in a cliffhanger, where you can play the next episode or come back to it later and play the next part. Even more spookily, it will give you a trailer for the next episode. Anyway, with cutting edge graphics, this should be something to look forward to next year. And finally this week, while Xbox 360 owners may be looking forward to Rumble Roses in May, THQ announced WWE Smackdown vs Raw 2007 for release in November. Traditionally a PlayStation game, this year not only will PS2 and PSP owners get a slice of the action, but so will Xbox 360 and PS3 owners too. Very little has been mentioned thus far other than a new analogue control system and a wider range of interactivity outside the ring, but expect a roster of over 50 wrestlers and an assortment of matches from Hell in a Cell, Elimination Chamber to the Royal Rumble and Bra and Panties matches, all in high def. While the titles never offer a deep challenge a la Oblivion, they are the ideal games for a beer evening. That's your gaming news for this week, back to Phil. Thanks Neil, and that's all the software news for this edition. Don't forget the AV Forums podcast Extra with me, which starts on the 11th of May. We'll see you then. Bye for now. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums podcast. At the AV Forums, we recommend that everyone has their home cinema calibrated. This means that they get the most from both the audio and visual sides of the systems. So what does professional calibration involve? And is it really worth it? To answer these questions, and joining us now on the phone, is calibration specialist Gordon Fraser from Convergent AV. The AV Forums podcast special feature. Welcome, Gordon, and uh, thanks for taking part in the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Phil. Starting uh, straight away with the first question and starting with picture, why is calibration needed? Shouldn't manufacturers ship their displays properly calibrated? Well, as a... the hub of it all that's a very good question um yes i would say uh, manufacturers should ship their products so that they're actually working uh, correctly and specification there are reasons why they don't and there are reasons why even if they did you still wouldn't have a calibrated system the main reason that manufacturers don't is that they actually want to differentiate their products and they want to make sure that you know Plasma A looks different from manufacturer B's plasma in a showroom, so they intentionally design defects and differences into them uh, that they think will be more appealing to somebody looking at it in a showroom. Even if they did uh, manage to design the product so that it was exactly to specification and it uh, displayed an image perfectly as long as the correct signal levels were going in, the problem you then have is that we're calibrating the entire display chain, and that means it's the source and the display, and in some systems that also means the environment which it's in, and the display manufacturer doesn't have uh, any control over all these other environmental issues and the sources that are plugged in. So they can only do uh, the best that they can, and it's up to the uh, the end user and the, the source manufacturers to make their products adhere to the standards. And of course, they don't because they want to differentiate their products from everything else. So they design errors into them. And that's where calibrators uh, like myself come in and try and realign everything so that they, they hit where they're supposed to hit. So 
would it be correct to say that in, in these circumstances, the, the TV or projection system being demoed is obviously not showing the screen at its very best um, because of the, the shop light and everything else? It, more, more often than not, it, it's, it's a high contrast looking picture. Is that, would that be correct? Indeed, uh, one of the it depends where you're where you're having your demonstration and where you're seeing your things. If you if you're making a judgment on pitch quality by walking around a, a major high street electrical store, then you're never going to see what the product's actually capable of, because they're no you've got no idea whether or not they're deliberately uh, misset up, and you've obviously you have the environmental issues of strong lighting which can obviously wash out the picture. It could be combated by the, the, the shop, then trying to you know turn the contrast up so that the product they want to sell looks really bright next to something else where they might turn the contrast down. You just know no way of telling what's actually correct or not. So in your opinion, um, and obviously this is your opinion, uh, as, as a calibrator, how, how can consumers make sure that they make the correct choice of display then? Well, it's very hard. Uh, obviously, forums uh, like uh, your own are very, very helpful. There's a wealth of information there of end users who are giving their opinion based on their products in their home. There are independent specialists who, uh, a lot of them, actually do calibrate their displays and set them up properly so that you're seeing them the best that they can be. Obviously because they're specialists it's unlikely you're going to get to see five manufacturers products all side by side. Uh, specialists will tend to have already done their homework and they'll have picked the one that they feel they can get the best performance out of. So uh, although it may cost more, I think a much safer bet is to, to go with a specialist. God, many, many people know about calibration DVDs. Can't people just spend a few quid and uh, get one of those and set their own system up? Well, I, I would strongly advocate that they do uh, get, actually get a calibration DVD and uh, set it up uh, as well as they could. Um, the only problem with calibration DVDs is that you've got to have the patience to obviously sit and uh, go through the spiel which they have, which explains how to use the thing. And there's a lot of confusion even after people have done that of how the test patterns should actually be used. The forums again can help. There are people who have written guides about how to use uh, these DVDs. But there comes a point where you need specialist measuring equipment to be able to actually get the, the products to adhere to the to written down standards for what a, a television or a projector should be doing when it's playing back uh, PAL video. Uh, you, you can't do it by eye. You need to have specialist tools. And unfortunately, that costs a lot more than a DVD. So we're now getting into the realms of uh, ISF. Obviously, you're ISF certified. So can you just explain what ISF is and, and what it does? Yeah, well, the ISF, it's a, an acronym for the Imaging Science Foundation. And it was an organization that's been set up. It was set up in America uh, by a couple of guys who were frustrated at the fact that the manufacturers of products weren't building them to the standards, broadcasters weren't adhering to the standards, and that the retailers weren't adhering to the standards. Uh, basically, what they said about trying to do was educate everybody that you know when when they set about designing color TV, be it NTSC or PAL, they actually did set down. Look, this is how uh, the the picture should be captured, broadcast, and played back, so that they could make sure that you know when they recorded somebody kicking a football across a pitch and it got played back on a TV screen, it was as close as possible 
to what the camera saw is what you see on your screen. Uh, so there's all sorts of standards for you know what color red, green, and blue phosphors we should have, what color black and white should be displayed as, uh, the graduations of intensity levels you should get, uh, dependent on the signal level coming in. All these things are written down so that we can make sure that we see the colors and the depth and perspective of picture we're supposed to see. Uh, the ISF have basically set about over the last 10 years trying to run training courses, educate people how to do this, explain what the test equipment's for. Uh, and it, it's created a, a, a small industry and it's really moved uh, the, the video retailing world forward, especially in North America. And obviously now it's, it's happening a lot here, thanks to people like myself and the forums who uh, a lot of people in forums really have uh, taken it on board and are starting to understand the benefits of it. So what then is an ISF calibration and roughly how long does it take? Well, an ISF calibration, as I think I mentioned earlier, it's a, a calibration of the entire display chain. A lot of people think that, it, oh, it's just uh, setting up you know, the, the user menus on a plasma TV or on a projector, and it's not. It's uh, looking at the, the whole thing, looking at all the settings. Quite often you'll find, or I'll go to people's homes, and they may have a DVD player, which has got brightness and contrast controls. They may then have a video processor, which has got brightness and contrast controls. And that's getting into a media box on a plasma, which has got brightness and contrast controls and color. So, you, you know, where... Where do you do the brightness and contrast adjustments? What happens? How do, how do you go about uh, you know, aligning all these things? Uh, and that's what ISF calibration is all about. It's, it's looking at the source and making sure the signal it's outputting is as close to the specification that it should be. Then moving on to the next stage and making sure that it's working as most accurately that it can be. And then moving on to the, the last part of the chain being a, usually it's a, a plasma display or an LCD display, a TV, a projector and making sure that all the user settings in it are configured as accurately as possible. Then it will probably also involve uh, quite often getting into service menus of these products and altering uh, settings which are, are hidden from the end user for good reason. Uh, so that the display device actually starts to conform to the standards rather than deviating from them. So can all types of screen technology and, and audiovisual technology be calibrated? Well, it should be able to. Uh, the, the obviously, the, if, you, if, you've, if, you're, if you've got a display, no matter what technology it is, if it's designed to play back uh, PAL video or NTSC video or HDTV, then somewhere hidden inside it, there will be the settings which will allow uh, someone like myself to actually calibrate it. The issues that we have are that sometimes these things are hidden very, very deeply in service menus and custom software is needed to, to get to them. Uh, but more often than not, now manufacturers are really starting to take this on board as well. And the settings which are required are usually, more often than not, now out in the open. Uh, it's just a case of, you know, most end users wouldn't understand what the settings are for. Whereas, obviously, people like myself do, and we have the tools to actually measure them and adjust them accordingly. So what are these tools that, that you use then? Well, uh, I use a, a thing called a spectroradiometer, uh, which measures the spectrum of energy coming off a display. Seems a bit a bit techy. Well, it is, I suppose. There's other tools, uh, tri-stimulus probes. These are we uh, devices which stick onto the front of the screen. They're usually connected to a laptop of some description, which will run uh, analysis software. We'll put test patterns through the entire chain, 
if we're not able to get test patterns from the source itself, maybe a Sky HD box or a Sky box, then we'll use a test pattern generator to emulate the output of that box. And uh, we'll take measurements and see how the display is behaving and make the appropriate measurements to get it all correct. So knowing all that, can friends um, split the cost of a calibration and just copy the settings that you've put into one onto another display? Well, they could if they wanted, but uh, if they did, uh, I would want to be the guy who had the original calibration done because the second guy who's getting the board settings isn't going to be getting uh, the best advice. Uh, the, the problem with that is that you would have to have identical systems. I mean, if you had identical systems, you know, identical cables, identical DVD players, identical plasmas, you might actually get a pretty reasonable result. I say might because you're making the assumption that every model A from plasma manufacturer, you know, Sony or Panasonic, whatever, you're, you're making the assumption that every single one is exactly the same. And these are mass manufactured products and they're not all exactly the same. So there, there is some level of tolerance in these things. And uh, basically what we're doing is like blueprinting a car engine. Uh, so, you know, the, the settings you have for blueprinting, you know, Mr. Smith's Ford Mondeo isn't going to be the same as for somebody else's. Yeah. So you'll get pretty close, but you could, you could just as easily make it worse rather than make it better. Was interested there that you're on about going into um, hidden menus and so on, and, and this brings us on to the next question about ISF calibration. Can that invalidate any warranties or, or shorten any display's lifespan? I'd be astounded if it invalidated any warranties. Certainly, I am completely unaware of any manufacturer who would uh, assume that ISF calibration would invalidate the warranty. Uh, the longevity question is a very good one. In actual fact, ISF calibration is much more likely to increase the longevity of a, of a product. The state that most devices ship in is not always dangerous, but it, it's they're, they're usually uh, working too hard, uh, really, compared to how they, they should work. Uh, they get over... Not, well, yeah, overdriven, I suppose, is the, is the way to describe it. It's not not to the state that you know, the thing's going to break after a year, but uh, the chances are that if you did actually leave these things running for a continuous amount of time, I suspect that a calibrated one would last longer. So I've just been down the showroom. I've just bought my new display. When's the best time to calibrate that? Well, some displays do actually change their characteristics after the first hundred or so hours. Um, so generally. I recommend wait at least 100 hours, preferably 200 if uh, it's certain manufacturers' devices. As a rule, I would, uh, regardless of whether or not the thing's actually going to change how it operates, I would always wait 100 hours before having any work done to any uh, expensive piece of electronic equipment because these devices, if they're ever going to go wrong, they actually, more likely they'll go wrong in, in very early in their life you know, than after a thousand hours. Yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of money to spend to find that, you know, the thing fails after three weeks and, you know, John John Lewis or someone's going to go and bring you a new one and you've got to pay for it all to get calibrated again. It's only happened to me once, but uh, after that point, I've always said, you know, wait a hundred hours and see what happens. Now, you said it's, it's all about the, the chain 
um, leading up to the, the display device. And obviously we've got new technologies coming online um, beginning of this year, such as Sky, Telewest, High Definition, Blu-ray and HD DVD. So if someone's thinking of adding that into the chain, are they better waiting till that's done before they get calibration done? That's a tricky one because the other sort of devices where there aren't going to be any test patterns uh, for a while to calibrate them. There might be some Sky HD test patterns if we can find where they broadcast from. But as it stands, even with Sky as it is, the test patterns they broadcast aren't the ones that we really need uh, for the sort of calibration that we're trying to achieve. So for sources like that, I would be using some form of... uh, emulation using something else to create a standard 720p or 1080i hd output because those devices are digital rather than analog devices uh, i would hope to get a much more consistent result between the products with hdmi we're we're talking very pretty set digital levels there's not much deviation that that can be done from what's required whereas with an analog output from a, a component output from a dvd player you can have variances in levels between the the different channels. The manufacturers can deliberately, you know, try and make things better than it's supposed to be. That's the thing tends not to happen in the digital domain. Uh, so, uh, I wouldn't see any problem in having calibrations done on devices now without having uh, a Sky HD box or a Blu-ray or HD DVD player. But ultimately, the the final tweaking would be done for for those sort of sources would be done by eye, and obviously in that case it would be good to have the sources available. So Gordon, how many ISF calibrations have you done over the years and, and what's been the overall reaction from your customers? <sighs> well, a lot. Millions, but my bank manager says not. Uh, I've done a lot. Uh, I've been doing this now for, I think since 2000, is when I, when I did my ISF training. Uh, not 2000 calibrations, but <laughs> since the year 2000. Uh, and I have to say that... Uh, I, appears to make people very happy. Uh, I get a lot of repeat uh, work. I get a lot of uh, people uh, appearing on the internet forums saying that they appreciate uh, what I've done for the displays. And it's not just me. The other ISF calibrators in the UK seem to be having the same effect. More As more people want ISF, more people take the ISF training, more calibrators are out there, more people, it's a snowballing effect, more people learn about it, and it's really picking up, it's, it's good. You're listening, You're listening to the AV Forums Podcast. With regard to the audio side of home cinema, pres- presumably audio calibration is similar to video calibration in that it's, it's not something really that an, an amateur can achieve anywhere near as, as good as a professional. Uh, yes, I, w- I would have said so. Uh, the audio calibration is um, it's it's pretty tricky, it has to be said, compared to video calibration because video calibration has standards set and audio doesn't. The there are no defined real standards for home theatre. There are standards for studios. The science behind uh, audio calibration is more complicated, and the tools required uh, for measuring it, are, I think, are are more complicated to use and understand. Does it always involve sticking egg boxes on the walls or, or, or bits of foam? Uh, egg boxes are optional, it has to be said. There is an, <laughs> an extra fee if egg boxes are involved. <laughs> but no, it doesn't uh, always involve that. The, the audio calibration, if you want to uh, get the best results, usually involves moving furniture or loudspeakers. And 
in most people's domestic situations, neither of those things are possible. You know, acoustic panelling can be put up in rooms uh, once you've uh, identified where it has to go and what the problems are, and quite often acoustic panelling can help. Uh, nowadays, you know, that sort of stuff can be uh, well disguised, so it can actually look attractive and be you know, stealth-like in its appearance. Mm. So how many ad, uh, audio calibrations have you done and what's been the overall reaction from your uh, customers? Well, the, the audio calibration is an interesting thing. I've not done lots. I've done uh, a fair few. But it's one of these things where I now actually generally advise people not to have a, a full audio calibration done because the, the costs are too great for uh, the end result. Because more often than not, uh, what I was finding is that I'm going to someone's house spending a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort to tell them these are all the things which are wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, so nowadays instead uh, I, I tend to offer a, a different sort of calibration whereby uh, instead of doing a complete audio analysis, you know, you know, looking at the entire audio spectrum, I'll just do uh, time alignment of the loudspeakers, audio levels, the very basic fundamental things uh, which will actually just achieve the best results out of the system which is there. It's only if somebody has a, a, a high-end system or a dedicated room that I would even consider doing a, a complete audio analysis these days. So what kind of things were getting in the way then? You know, you've, t you've turned around and saying, well, forget it. Well, well what gets in the way is that uh, the, 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 the problems which people usually have with audio in rooms are things like boomy bass or uh, inaudibility of the center channel or something like that. These are things which are caused by how the loudspeaker interacts with the room. Uh, so your choices there are move the loudspeaker, move your seats, or do, do something to change the actual uh, size and appearance of the room to the loudspeaker. And most of the people uh, that I would go and see, the, the, you know, the, the subwoofer is going in the corner because that's the only place it can go. My wife won't let me put it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you're stuffed. There's nothing, nothing you can do. Yeah. You know? uh, the speakers are going where they're going because that's where they have to go. There's nowhere else in the room they can go. And to give you an example, one of the, one of the, the chaps that I saw, um, it was very early on when I started doing the, the, the acoustic analysis, and uh, did a video, did the video system for him, did the audio system. And he had his cinema in a converted kitchen. It actually was the kitchen. The kitchen table was there, uh, amongst other things, furniture. And it was a, I seem to remember it was a slate floor, so a solid slate floor. And we discovered that he, was, he had a real problem with really, really boomy bass. It was, you know, there was a certain room node which just, you know, made your ears bleed. And they, it was all, it was a cube. The room was like a cube. So it didn't really matter where you went. This was a problem. And eventually we discovered that I, after, you know, doing some analysis, moving uh, the, the subwoofer about, I managed to find a location with this, where we could actually have it so that where you would sit to watch a film you didn't have this horrible boominess and we actually got pretty reasonable good flat response. Problem was it's actually impossible to get the cables or a main socket to the subwoofer in that location. So, you know, that cost the guy several hundred pounds. Yeah. For me to say, there you go. That's what you have to do. I know it's impossible, sorry, bye. And that's the thing that happens.
Finally, um, not all all of our uh, listeners will know this, but Gordon was behind the highly successful event in Glasgow a few years ago and did the same thing, but even better with Event 2 in Guildford a couple of years ago. And I still think about the yoga even now, Gordon. <laughs> the event was a, obviously an opportunity to see different display technologies in the flesh properly calibrated and an opportunity to have it all explained to uh, those who went along by the experts. I can only hope, Gordon, that there might be an event three sometime in the future. Event three was originally planned to have happened by now. Um, our, my my plan with event three was always to do it when there was something to show people, and what we actually wanted to show people were 1080p displays and high definition uh, source formats like Blu-ray and HD DVD. All these things uh, I actually thought would have been out last September, and obviously the Historically, all sorts of things have happened. They've all moved on and on and on and on. So it's definitely on the cards. How we go about doing it, uh, I'm not sure. I have spoken to uh, Elliot, uh, PG Hi-Fi, who very graciously let me use, you know, their shop uh, for the one we did a couple of years ago. And Elliot's quite keen to get involved again. But uh, obviously, we want to we want to make it better than it was the last time, and it's. It was a major, it's a major undertaking to try and do it. But yes, we have plans. That's exciting. That's great news. Gordon, thanks very much for, for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Phil. We'd like to thank Gordon for taking the time to talk to us on this podcast. And if you'd like to find out any more information about ISF calibration or audio calibration, you can have a look at Gordon's website, which is convergent-av.co.uk. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. If you have any AV hardware issues which you'd like us to contact manufacturers about on your behalf, please email avdoctor at avforums.com. And that wraps up the fifth AV Forums podcast. If you have any comments, feature suggestions or news for our next podcast, please let us know in our feedback forum at www.avforums.com. This is Jason Bradbury saying thanks for listening, stay subscribed and tell your friends. The AV Forums podcast was presented by Jason Bradbury and written by John Archer. The DVD News and Reviews Roundup was written and presented by Phil Hinton with gaming news written by Damon Dove. Original music by Andrew Bassett. The podcast was produced and mixed by Phil Hinton and the executive producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Forums podcast is copyright M2N Limited.